Hey everyone, welcome to Active and Connected Families. Today we're going to be talking about how and why we as parents need to stop fixing our kids' feelings and start just sitting with our kids when they're having all of their emotions. If you're anything like me, when your kids start showing anger, sadness, fear, any emotion in a big form, you want to either fix the problem for them or just send them away to deal with it on their own. So today we have Dr. Hilary Roscoe, licensed clinical psychologist and podcast host of Raised Resilient, to let us know why just being there with our kids when they're experiencing all of these highs and lows is going to lead to happier and more importantly, healthier human beings in the long run. She even says that sitting with kids' feelings is especially hard for those of us who were raised in the 80s because it was such a different time and parenting strategies were so different then. So as a child born in 1980, I'm particularly excited to hear what she has to say. Dr. Hillary is going to give us the new updated tools for helping our kids learn about emotions, and she's going to help us learn how to recognize and manage our own voices so that we can just be with our kids when they are, you know, feeling all the feels. Hillary's an old friend. I'm so happy she's here for this chat and to help me reflect on my own parenting style. If you like this episode and want to learn more, you can find Hillary at Raised Resilient Podcast and Instagram. And if you're coming from her podcast, we hope you like this episode and we'd love it if you would subscribe and share to Active and Connected Families as well. Hope you all are having a great new year and we will see you all soon. Active and Connected Families is a smart, relatable conversation with me. Dr. Amanda Sovic-Johnston, child psychologist, mother of three, and entrepreneur. I've spent my career providing family therapy and supporting high-achieving mothers, and maybe even more hours with my girlfriends trying to figure out how we can all feel more confident in our work and our relationships. And you all, there's one thing I've noticed. We're all struggling in some of the same places, and we're all looking for some down-to-earth advice that we can actually use. So on Active and Connected Families, I'll share some of the insights I've learned, strategies for those daily fights about laundry, some expert perspective on the bigger issues like the mental health crisis, and me chatting with my therapist friends about how we can all feel a little more active and connected in our lives. Throughout, I hope to make you laugh at least once, but I know I'll leave you with something that'll help you become a better parent and maybe even person. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, Hillary. Welcome to Active and Connected Families. I am so happy to see you. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You all, since Hillary and I have known each other for so long, I've always known that Hillary is like the guru to go to for younger to like tweenish aged kids for all of the things. So today she's going to help us talk about why we should stop fixing our kids' feelings. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Amanda. That's so sweet. And I always think of you as the guru for teen girls, especially teens in general. But that's nice. Yeah. So it's funny. I think, you know, I get a lot of questions from parents about how do we build emotion regulation in our kids? And I think there's a lot of things that people do outside of the moment, right? Reading books, trying to name different feelings and show facial expressions that match those feelings. And those things are great. But what actually builds emotion regulation is letting our kids feel their feelings in your safe presence, like you as the adult caregiver. And I think 
a lot of times we either don't know that, so we don't do it, or we don't do it because it's really uncomfortable to sit with our kids' big feelings and not try to fix them and not try to get them back to feeling happy. So when you even talk about to help our kids develop emotion regulation, you and I both know what that means, but what does that mean? What does emotion regulation mean? What does it mean to be able to regulate your emotions? Yeah, it's a great question. Because if you're not a psychologist, (laughs) you're not thinking in those terms all the time. Yeah. So emotion regulation essentially just means how do we teach our kids to do the right things with their feelings? Because we all have feelings and all of our feelings are acceptable and fine. We don't need to judge our feelings. We don't need to feel bad about what we're feeling. But what we do with our feelings matters, right? Just because we get mad, we can't go punch somebody. So emotion regulation is how our kids sort of learn to feel the feeling and regulate the feeling so that it doesn't come out through a hit or words that are unkind or behavior that's not appropriate. So it's essentially like, how do you help? By the way, I'm struggling with this as a mom too. Just FYI, I'm working on regulating my own emotions because I guess we all do it throughout our whole lives. But the idea is how do we feel our feelings and also act in ways that we want to act when we're having those feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. And and join the club. Like I think as a generation, what I find in my work with parents, what I see in myself, like we didn't get what I call what the attachment literature, but also what I call co-regulation. We didn't get that as kids. We didn't have our parents sit with us when we felt mad and go, oh, it's okay to feel mad. I see that you're mad. I'm going to stop you from hitting, but wow, it's okay to feel mad. No, we got punished. We got sent to our rooms. We got told to stop acting like that, which we then internalized as stop feeling that. So if you are a mom who feels uncomfortable when you feel angry and unsure of how to regulate that, like join the club because we never learned those skills as kids. And I'm why didn't we learn those? Was there something happening socially or culturally, I guess, in the 80s where kids were punished for feeling those feelings? Do you have any idea? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what was happening. And, you know, if you look at generations before us. And you take the concept of intergenerational trauma, right, which is kind of when trauma is passed down from generation to generation. You look at our country and you look at people immigrating, leaving everything they knew to come to somewhere that was supposed to be better. You look at wars, people fighting in wars, all kinds of trauma. If I just think about my own family, there's just so much that went on, you know, and so the fact that they were able to show up and then have kids and raise kids to me is pretty amazing. But, you know, like my dad was spanked with a belt and he broke that cycle to his credit. But then he was always emotionally dysregulated as he was trying to raise us. So he never hit us, which is amazing. But he was yelling and dysregulated a lot because he just had no idea how to regulate his emotions. Because anytime he felt mad or did something his parents didn't like, he got hit. So in the 80s, I think we were maybe starting to move away from using a belt, although some families still do now, um, even though we have tons of research that says that's not helpful, but they didn't know that then. you know. And then in the 80s, I think people were trying to move away from that, but they were still using timeouts and all kinds of other ways of punishing. And the narrative was like, good kids don't act like that. And good parents have good kids. But the truth is all kids have these feelings and hits and kicks and mean words are just the way the feelings are flying out of them in that moment. And we as parents have to help them recognize like, it's okay to have that feeling. And also, let me help you do the right things with it. 
And I think what you said is so true because it's not just all kids have all feelings. All adults have all feelings. All human beings have feelings. And part of it is as we're helping our kids regulate, we're also trying to regulate ourselves because we have a lot of feelings that are happening in stressful moments as well. A hundred percent. And we can't provide co-regulation, which I've used that word a couple of times, so I'll define it. It's essentially just you allowing your child to feel their feelings and keeping them safe while they do it. So your calm and regulated presence is necessary for co-regulation. So we're not co-regulating when we are emotionally activated and not managing it, right? If we're screaming, if we're yelling, we're not co-regulating in that moment. And so if our big feelings were met with yells and anger, then we weren't getting co-regulation. And so as adults, yeah, we still have those feelings. And now not only are we expected to regulate our own emotions, but we're expected to calm ourselves, regulate ourselves so that we can co-regulate with our kids. It's a tall order for someone who's never had those skills. It's a super tall order. So let me play this out. When one of my kids, so one of my sweet children, if I say, hey, it's time to take a shower, that can result in like a full body flop, screaming on the floor, whining. And in the 80s, if a kid would have done that, it would have been like, go to your room right now. You know, you absolutely cannot act this way. I mean, I already can hear my mom's voice said with love, mom, I love you. You were you were doing the best you knew how to, right? Absolutely. But that was what was happening how should we be handling a full body flop about, you know, taking a shower and normal hygiene? And it is so triggering. I just want to acknowledge that because as kids, we are wired to be in the good graces of our caregiver. So if your mom was saying, go to your room when you acted like that, then you learned adaptively to stop acting like that. The problem is you still had those feelings that needed to come out in that moment. You just learned to stuff them down or they came out in other ways. Right. And so for a lot of us, that can result in people pleasing, perfectionistic tendencies, but we're not meeting our own needs. You're not talking to me, are you? <laughs> I'm talking, I'm using you as an example, but I'm not <laughs> saying that. No, my I mean, I, strategy is like, is nurturing, to be honest with you. My coping okay. strategy is definitely like nurturing and taking care of other people. Yeah. Because that's what you learned, probably. Again, I'm not psychoanalyzing you on the fly. We have, we can do that later. Um, but <laughs> this is what we do for fun. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, if you learned that in order to be in your mom's good graces, to get that love that you needed to be nurturing, right, then that could be, that might be how that's showing up for you. But the point is that when your own child gets to sort of throw themselves on the floor, and I say gets to because you're allowing them space to feel and gets to push back and say, no, I don't want to do this right now. That little part of you that wanted and needed to do that, that you've made really small to stay in your parents' good graces is like screaming at you. Make it stop. Make him stop. This is not safe. This is going to get him into trouble. This is going to lose him love. Now, that's not conscious. But that's why when that happens, like your entire nervous system is reacting as if there's an actual threat when your child is throwing themselves on the floor and refusing that shower. A million percent. And one term that they call that inner voice is shark music, which yes. is, um, you know, if you listen to Jaws, it's like the background music of done it, done it. And it's just, it's not, you don't even notice it's there, but it makes you feel so anxious and so tense. That's that inner story 
that yes. we as parents live with is this shark music. Like, don't act that way because you're going to lose love or something like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that term shark, shark music comes from the Circle of Security Parenting Program, which was pulled from the decades of attachment research out of UVA. Mm-hmm. And in the actual Circle of Security Parenting Program, they show you a scene of a beach and they play relaxing music. And it's like a place you'd want to hang out. And then they show you the exact same footage, but they play the Jaws music, like literally. And you're sitting here going, oh my gosh, somebody's going to get eaten on this beach. That's the same footage. But the song playing in your mind in that moment influences how you feel, whether or not you feel safe. And so when we have those narratives playing in our heads going, this is not safe, make it stop, then we feel like we have to punish or otherwise regain control and get that kid to stop flailing on the floor and having this moment, right? And just do what we're asking them to do. But your child in that moment needs to be able to express those feelings. And so what should we do? You know, I think, first of all, let the feelings be. You don't have to fix the feelings. You don't have to make it stop. You can acknowledge, wow, you really don't want to do this right now. Okay, I get that. Right. And so sometimes just acknowledging it and giving it a second to breathe can be enough. And then sometimes it's not. Sometimes we then have to say, you know, I can see that this is really hard for you. Do you want to do it now or do you want to do it in five minutes? Do you want to brush your teeth first or do you want to take a shower first? Right. And I'm thinking for younger kids, a lot of times, you know, those structured choices are really helpful because it gives your child back that sense of autonomy. Sometimes for older kids, there's something else going on, right? Like they might be falling on the floor over the shower because there's a test at school or a social situation that's stressful for them. And that needs to come out, mm-hmm. right? And they're not even aware that that's what needs to come out. But by letting those feelings out, obviously, you're not going to let your kid hit you or destroy things. But outside of that, letting those feelings come out then invites your child to maybe share what they needed to share that they didn't even realize they need to share, you know? So how would that play out? So I say take a shower. There's a full flop. You know, hey, I can see you're really like stressed out about the idea of the shower, you know, or th- this, you feel really mad about this or really sad, right? You're lo- I'm looking for something back because I don't know if I always know exactly what the feeling is. Yeah. And you don't have to. You can just say, wow, I get you really don't want to do this, right? Something about this really doesn't feel right to you right now. Okay. I'm getting that. I get that. I feel like that sometimes too. Like just let it be and invite de-shame, right? Like that's another word that goes through my head in these moments, like de-shame this expression, de-shame this moment, because a lot of times what we want to say is, okay, look, I know that you don't want to take a shower, but like you need to take a shower because like you're going to be smelly or whatever, you know, whatever we might say. And there are real reasons, like hygiene stuff matters, but saying that makes a child feel a sense of shame. And that actually can lead to more defensiveness, unkind words, because then they don't feel safe expressing that emotion around you. So we're not worried, like put a pin in the shower for a minute, if you can mentally and emotionally in that moment, and just let the feeling come out. And a lot of times it's not even about the shower, right? You know what I mean? It's like that resistance just needs to exist. If you are enjoying this episode and want more mental health support for you or your family, visit us at www.virginiafamilytherapy.com. We're a mental health practice with offices in Lynchburg, Charlottesville, and Northern Virginia, and we provide teletherapy across Virginia and North Carolina. We offer psychiatry, individual, child, and family therapy, and even have some after-school appointments available. Again, that's www.virginia, spelled out, familytherapy.com. 
Thanks so much for listening. I like to think about like an emotional water pitcher and like we all have one. And if you think about the last adult meltdown you had, I don't know, for me, it was over. I think we were like out of coffee, something really small. I hear you. In the grand I scheme. see you, Hillary. I see you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and it's like, it wasn't about the coffee. It was about everything else that had built up. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So for our kids, they go to school. They're expected to, you know, not act on their impulses. They're expected to fall in line, to be quiet, to sit down and learn. There's actually tons of research that suggests that that's hard for kids. And so our educational system hasn't necessarily caught up to all of that. And we're asking our kids to do things that in terms of executive functioning, in terms of impulse control, like it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And the ones who can't do it don't. Those are the kids who need a little more support. But the ones who can do it, they they do it, but they're like white knuckling. And they get home and maybe they have to go to sports practice or maybe they have homework. And so their pitcher just gets fuller and fuller. And then you ask them to take a shower and like some water's got to come out. There's just no more room for water. You know, and I think even hearing this, I think this is more true for boys because the research is suggesting that the educational system is better set up for girls right now. There's a lot of sitting, there's a lot of praise for raising your hand. It is a harder time for boys in education and at school. So if boys are having a hard time at the end of the day, that's actually to be more expected, not because there's anything wrong with boys, but because school's really hard for them in a way that's different than it is for girls. Absolutely. I think that is so true. And I think when boys are struggling with that, we tend to label them more quickly than we would a girl as, you know, being a problem or, you know, not listening when actually they're doing the best they can. And that's something I think we need to remember about all of our kids. It's a quote from Dr. Ross Green, who wrote The Explosive Child. Kids do well when they can. Absolutely. So if your child is not doing well, there's a reason. And it's not to make you mad. You know, it might feel like that, but that's not really. And it's not because you've been permissive and now you need to like lay down the law. And it's not because you're a bad parent. Like kids are just having a hard time because it's the world is hard and life is hard and things are tough and they're going to have emotions because they're human beings, just like we have emotions because we're human beings. Absolutely. And that's we have to look at these feelings, not as failings on our kids part or on our part but actually just as part of the normal ebb and flow of life. But because we were not allowed to have our feelings come and go like that, we were ushered away from our feelings. You know, as a generation, we were told, get up, brush it off. You're fine. Don't cry. Don't worry about that. That's a silly thing to worry about. Right. And so we were constantly shooed away from our feelings, which I think for most of us makes it feel like, okay, there must be something really unsafe about feeling that because my whole life I've been told to get away from that as quickly as possible. And now We're being told, sit with your child's feelings, allow it to exist, allow it to ebb and flow. But there's like a part of our nervous system that just like doesn't trust that. So where's the learning for that? Because I hear this, by the way, I'm a million percent with you, but I hear this and there's the part of my head that's like, so then what? Like I'm going to have a little kid who I know the answer to this is going to go to college and never take showers or a teacher (laughs) asks him to do something and he just has feelings and is a jerk because he wants to be like, talk about that. What do we do with that? Yeah. Okay. So I call that the parenting rabbit hole and I go down it myself plenty of the time. So no judgment if you recognize this in yourself, but it's when we start to go, oh my gosh, what is wrong with my kid? If it's this hard now, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like in five years, in 10 years? Oh my gosh, I'm raising an unkind, ungrateful, bad kid, right? Like that's where we go. Or I'm a bad parent. If I was a better parent, I would not be um, having a kid act like this. Mm -hmm. I would be knowing how to handle this. That's where we go. 
To me, all of that is shark music. Can you just push pause on that and just say, okay, I hear you parenting rabbit hole. I hear you shark music. I'm going to push pause. Can you parent the kid in front of you? Forget about the future. Forget about what it's going to be like when they go to college. Because you know the answer, right? If you're really intellectually like, yeah, of course my kid is going to be fine by the time they go to college. And that is exactly right. None of these behaviors are this like warning sign of some horrible lifelong problem. It is a normal part of life for your child to resist you sometimes. And so instead of worrying about how it's going to look, can you slow the process down and really be in the moment with that kid and really just empathize? You really don't want to get in the shower. Okay. Can you tell me more about that? Like get curious. Like that is sort of my mantra in these hard moments. Get curious. You know, it was like a couple weeks ago at dinner, my oldest, who is usually my fall in line and your typical oldest, very rule follower. And he was having a really hard time at dinner, just like purposefully looking at his younger brother and trying to trigger him, you know, just like stuff that I'm not used to seeing from him. I mean, I see it, but like it was really, he was leaning into it. Normally I can say, Hey, all right, let's not do that. So we have a signal. He puts up one finger and that is his signal to say like, I need a minute. Can you come with me? So we went outside and at first I was just going, what is going on? Like I thought I was getting curious, but actually I was kind of putting shame on him. Like, why, why are you acting like that? Like, that's not okay. And then I caught myself because it wasn't getting me anywhere. And I finally actually got curious. I was like, it seems like this is really hard for you tonight. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm stressed about school. I have this test that I don't know if I'm going to do well on. And it all came out and he just needed to share that with me. And he hugged me. We went back in and had dinner and it was fine. It was as if it had never happened. If I had gotten so stuck on like, I have to teach him this lesson. I have to make him stop doing this. I have to make sure he understands that what he was doing was not okay. We would have never had that moment where he was actually able to share with me what was really going on for him to be vulnerable and share like, this is really hard. I'm nervous about this. And then when we went back in, it's like the behavior had just gone away. And I've seen that happen with bedtime too. Like with my five-year-old, he was so stuck over brushing his teeth last night. Like he did not want to do it. I kept saying, okay, do you want to do this first or that first? And it was just like full on meltdown. And so I said, you know what? I have a weird idea. What if we just like play Legos? What if we, for two minutes, we just play Legos? And he was like, okay. So for two minutes, we sat and we built with Legos. By the time we were done, it was as if he had just forgotten completely that he didn't want to brush his teeth. And I said, so should we brush your teeth now? He's like, sure. I mean, it just like went away. All because I slowed down and actually like dropped my end of the rope, you know, and just either got curious or changed things up a little bit, you know, and I don't think we should distract our kids from their feelings. So like, I wouldn't say, oh, you don't want to take a shower. Let's play Legos. Like I wouldn't do that all the time. But I think in the case of my five-year-old, it was like, I already acknowledged, like, you really don't want to do this. Do you want to do this or this? And none of it was working. And so I just changed things up because I was like, you know what? Let's try this. But I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge, acknowledge this feels really hard. You really don't want to do this. I hear that. So how do you link that to learning how to do it differently in the future? Because I think that's the piece is we all know these feelings are there. That doesn't mean that your son gets to be kind of a jerk to his little brothers at dinner just because he's stressed about something at school. So how do we take that to the next level? That's a great question. Well, first of all, you've got to remind yourself that you cannot teach new skills in the moment. Like when your kid is emotionally activated, none of us can learn. That part of our brain is shut down, right? When we're emotionally activated. So 
we got to take the pressure off of ourselves to do it in the moment, to lecture, to get our point across, because it's not, it's going to fall on deaf ears. It's just not going to work. So it's really co-regulate first. It's absolute co-regulate first. And then I'm talking like, it might be days later when you actually get to talk about, hey, you know, I was thinking about the other day when, or I was noticing that sometimes when X happens, you have a hard time with Y, right? So then you can say, what do you think? right? Include your child in the process. And that's actually how my son and I came up with the one finger thing where he holds up, he holds up his finger as a signal for me. Like in a quiet, calm moment, we were just talking and I was like, you know, sometimes those big feelings really come out at dinner. And he acknowledged, he's like, yeah, because then school's coming up and I'm stressed and bedtime's next. And I was like, well, what do you think we can do? Like, what's something that we could do to sort of interrupt that cycle and give you what you need? And he's like, can I just have a minute to talk to you? I was like, sure. How do you think you can let me know that? And it just came out organically. So the signal, even though he was kind of being a jerk to his brother, he used the signal. And like, that's a step better than the last time before we came up with that strategy. Right. And over time, my hope is that he'll be able to use the signal without even taking things out on his brother. But I mean, think about it. Even as adults, we're not perfect at that. I think having those tools, having coping skills and talking about those things as, you know, when you feel like this, here are some things you can do. That's really important, but we can't do that in the moment. We have to co-regulate and we can't even have that. Like I said, once your child is calm, we want to focus on connection after they're calm we, and connection through the co-regulation. We don't want to get them calm and then go, okay, now let's talk about this, right? Don't make that your goal. If the moment comes up, the moment comes up. But I think we put so much pressure on ourselves as parents to have it all figured out like yesterday. And the truth is all of these little moments are leading to emotion regulation. So even you co-regulating, even if ultimately your child doesn't get up and take the shower right then like you want them to, you co-regulating with them in that moment allows them to understand that feelings come and feelings go. They're not going to engulf me. I don't have to stop everything and freak out because this feeling is here. Like I know what this feels like in my body and it is safe and it's going to pass which is going to make them more able the next time they feel that to tolerate it. And every time they tolerate that feeling in your safe presence, they get better at that. That makes a ton of sense to me. Also, by the way, everything Hillary's talking about also applies to preteens and teenagers as well, for sure. We still co-regulate with our teenagers and we still co-regulate with our partners, you all. like That's part of what a marriage is and what makes a marriage healthy is just one partner saying, like, I'm so sad and you being there with them when they're feeling sad. We're not trying to fix that in our partners. That's part of human connection and what keeps us alive. I'm curious about when does that shift? Is there an age where pre-adolescence or adolescence that shifts? So, you know, it might look a little bit different in that with your three-year-old, you might be stopping their wrist and saying, I'm not going to let you hit, right? Hopefully, most of the time, our adolescents are at least handling those physical impulses a little bit better. Not always, but hopefully, right? But it might come out a little more through their words. It might come out through their refusal to do things that you want them to do. And I think the biggest thing that stays the same is just that we need to acknowledge that feeling, right? Like, I really get this. This feels really bad for you. And I think for our adolescents too, like they are simultaneously really needing us. They're still dependent on us, you know, like they couldn't go live on their own yet. But also they're supposed to be testing out and sort of toe in the water of like being on their own. 
And so they might come to us and say, hey, I've got this thing going on at school. And I think a lot of times we want to jump in with our knowledge of the world and life and be like, oh, well, here's what you should do. So what I would say is, can you just, and this is true with our partners too, like most of the time our partners don't need us to fix their problems. They need us to just co-regulate, to listen, to hold space, which looks like, okay, I hear you. You had a really rough day. Do you want to tell me about it? Instead of, well, here's what you should do. Right. And so we have to really resist that urge, but especially with our adolescents, because they really need to feel like they're the ones making the decisions and you're holding space and you're empathizing, but you are not jumping in to fix things for them. They need to feel like they are in charge of their lives and they're bringing you in like they're choosing to bring you in. So just be grateful and open that door, but allow them to shut their metaphorical door because sometimes they need to. And they will if we let them do that on their own, they will then ask us for help. Right. If I let my kids feel their feelings and kind of vent and explode or whatever it is in a safe way that's age appropriate, then they will say, like, hey, actually, I am having a hard time with this kid at school. How can we solve this problem or what should I do? They will ask for help if you let them have their feeling. Yes. And letting them have their feelings, I think this is important, especially with adolescents, but for all kids, letting them have their feeling includes when they are being self-deprecating, when they're saying things like, I'm clearly stupid, or I'm just not pretty, or I'm just, you know, like whatever they're saying, instead of coming in and going, oh, no, 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 you're so smart, right? Or how would people not like you? You're amazing, right? We want to say that we want to make them feel better, but we're actually doing nothing to increase their self-confidence when we do that. Right. Because we're now they just feel alone with that issue. Because they're saying, this is my problem. And you're saying that's not a problem, right? So they're not going to come to you to learn how to solve that problem because you're saying there is none. Absolutely. And so we want our kids to feel safe to share with us whatever their thoughts are. What Even if those thoughts feel unspeakable to them, we want them to be able to share that with us. And you can play that out to its logical end. When kids are having thoughts of self-harm or thoughts of you know doing things that are destructive, we want them to come to us with those feelings. And so how do we get there? We accept all feelings. We let those feelings be. And we just put up like, you know, I like to think of like the gutter guards at the bowling alley. So our kid's not hitting and they're not destroying things. But like outside of that, we got to let them have their feeling and let that feeling take its course. So Hillary, I believe all of this and I use a lot of this. And the thing where I get tripped up are the competing pressures of all of my children. So I want to be able to be there when my eight-year-old son is having a meltdown about a shower. But I also want him to be able to play soccer because that's good for his social emotional development. And I also know he needs an early bedtime and I also want him to do his chores. So I don't have time for him to have a meltdown around a shower because I've got all these other pressures. What do I do with that? Yeah, that's really tough. Um, I mean, there's just, there's realities here. I have three kids too, and and it's really tough sometimes logistically. You can't be in three places at once. But even for him, those are all competing for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then on top of that, like you said, you've got the competing pressures in his own life. We had a lot of battles around soccer this year with my third grader. And that was it's hard because he chose to play soccer. He wants to play soccer. He really loves it. But then sometimes it would come time to go to soccer. And he didn't want to go. Like he would full on put on the brakes. How did we handle that? We acknowledged the feeling. I let the feeling be. I'm like, oh my gosh, you really don't want to go to soccer. Meanwhile, I'm like getting his soccer stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I am moving my confident momentum forward, but I'm hearing him out. Like, okay, I get it. You really don't want to go. Okay. 
Tell me why you don't want to go. Tell me more about that. I'm going to put your cleats in the car, right? This is what I'm doing. And ultimately, every time he ended up getting in the car and going, was it easy? Was there a lot of pushback? It was not easy. Yes, there was a lot of pushback, but ultimately he ended up going. We just gave him the space to express how much he didn't want to go, how much it really stunk on a Thursday when he only had one more day of school left in the week to not just be able to come home and chill, you know, and we just allowed space for that and ultimately held the expectation that like, we're going to go to soccer. But I didn't say it like, oh, I know you don't want to go to soccer, but you have to go. I didn't say the, but I just said, oh, you really don't want to go to soccer. My actions were the, but right. That's implied. I was just getting us ready. We were moving toward the door, but like, I was just letting him tell me how much it really sucked and he didn't want to go. And I think the piece is that sometimes the shark music, honestly, for people of privilege is I'm raising an entitled privileged kid. Like I know a lot of people who would really like to be able to play soccer and would really like to be able to have an early bedtime or would really like to be able to go to school and not be worried about like microaggressions or systemic racism in the school. And so sometimes when I see my kids having meltdowns around things that I'm like, you are so lucky that can trigger me, but it doesn't have to. No, it doesn't have to. And you're right. That is shark music. A hundred percent. Not because those things aren't real and that those, those issues aren't important because they are so important, but our kids' feelings are completely separate from these systemic issues. Like our kids feeling their feelings actually is what's going to allow them to grow up to be full functioning humans who can do something about those issues. And that might be the reframe that you need in that moment. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yes. I love that reframe. Because it's hard. I mean, and I think for us too, as adults, like how many times do you feel, even with yourself, you feel competing frustrations? Like, Sometimes I'm frustrated when my toddler is screaming at the top of her lungs, but also I really, 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 really wanted this child. I love her to the moon and back. I'm so glad I have three kids. I always wanted three kids. Also, it's really freaking hard sometimes. And sometimes I get mad at myself. I'm like, you're not allowed to feel this way because you wanted these kids. And, you know, no, no, no. Like, I'm allowed to feel frustrated. And my frustration does not negate my love for them. So similarly, your child not wanting to go to soccer that day doesn't negate the fact that your kiddo is really lucky to be able to play soccer or even that your kid loves soccer. Like my kid loves soccer and he still didn't want to go to practice sometimes. Like both of the two things are true. And I think that this drives my husband crazy because I'm always like, it's both and, but it is both things are true. He is upset about going to soccer and he feels lucky he can go right? So both can be true. It is not one or the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we think about entitlement, again, entitlement is much more likely to happen as a result of a child not being respected, of them being controlled, of them not getting to be who they are, not to show up warts and all. They're much more likely to act entitled as adults because that's what they're used to. They're used to people expecting them to just do it because I said so, right? Or when I ask it, you do it no matter what. Like that's way more likely to result in entitlement absolutely, than letting your kid feel their feelings. Hillary, this was so helpful, I think, for our listeners. Also for me, obviously, as a parent, because I'm learning a ton and reflecting a ton. How can people find you? 
So people can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Raised Resilient. I also have a parenting podcast called Raised Resilient with Dr. Hillary. So you can go to raisedresilient.com slash podcast or anywhere you get your podcasts. And I have a free guide, Six Mindset Shifts to Ditch the Overwhelm and Parent in a Way that Feels Good. So if these perspective shifts that we talked about today really spoke to you, this is sort of the list of mindset shifts I had to make to get to a place where even when things are really crazy hard as a parent, I feel like, okay, at least I know I'm doing okay. you know. And I feel like to me, that was kind of a big thing to achieve. So I want other people to be able to do that too. So you can go to raiseresilient.com forward slash mindset and you can grab that totally free. Amazing. Thank you so much, Hillary, for your time and your support and your help. Um, everyone should visit Raised Resilient and I'll talk to you super soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This it was, was so, so fun. fun. I love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to like and share the Active and Connected Families podcast if you found this helpful. And if you or someone you love are interested in therapy, you can find out more about our practice at www.virginiafamilytherapy.com. Again, that's www.virginia, all spelled out, therapy.com. Thanks again.